got stars in my eyes. You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we wish we could write. Jonathan Bradley Welch returns to the letter show with a letter he wrote to himself, newly arrived in Los Angeles exactly one year ago. Dear Jonathan, dear, sweet, untainted, freshly 30-year-old Jonathan, the Jonathan of a year ago, I am your future. Consider this letter a weird Dickensian time-traveling visit from you a year older, but decades more haggard. And why? (laughs) Let's start with the positive first. Congratulations! You're about to embark on a journey that I have expert inside information will last at least one year. As you get on that plane at John Fitzgerald Kennedy International Airport in New York City, bound for Los Angeles, you from what I recall, have a glimmer of hope in your eyes and a newfound air of whimsy in your step because you have made the drastic decision to leave your life as a journalist and editor in New York and chart the course for a life in L.A. A life, I may add, that is often sought after by people younger, debatably prettier, and wealthier than you are in this moment. But you know what? Go for it. YOLO is the catchphrase of the year that you're living in right now, and trust me, it's subject to change, just like your optimism is also subject to change. A year is a long time, and it's also short in the grand scheme of things, but it can be long, really, really long. And this, dear lad, is about to be the longest year of your life. Let's now move on to talk about stereotypes, cliches, and bad raps. All of the above exist for a reason, and they can be painfully true. You're going from sharing a subway with hundreds of thousands of people and millions of germs, sure, that's very gross, to traveling everywhere in your own bubble. Your bubble, Jonathan, will be a Nissan. You'll hate the Nissan because it feels like it's made of tinfoil. Remember to go with a Toyota next time. But you know, a bubble is a bubble. And even though you're thinking to yourself, yeah, there's traffic, but I get to look at the sunshine and the blue sky and feel less claustrophobic. So so much sunshine, so much blue sky. It never, it never rains, kiddo. Never rains. And the claustrophobia? isn't that bad when you feel like you might turn into a hide of over-tan leather like Peter Cetera, George Hamilton, or the landlady from There's Something About Mary. These are your examples and your role models now. Cherish them. What a year it will be! I want to draw your attention now to friends. Funny thing about friends... When you have a great time and you're a blast to be around, that's when you find those friends. And you are flying across the country right now with a handful of people in your life you consider good friends who will get your back. Well, guess what? They've got your back all right. 
They've just got it with a knife. (laughs) Now, I won't go into detail about that particular kind of heartache that comes from losing trust in someone, because it happens to all of us. Whether we grow from it in an Eckhart Tolle kind of way, or choose to confront those who've talked some shit about us on the Jerry Springer show or a similar outlet, it's our choice to make. You'll be pretty mum on the subject, unless you're at your therapist's office, or on stage at a storytelling show. (laughs) Oh yeah, by the way, you're going to get a therapist this year and a juicer. They come in your welcome kit along with a vacuum-sealed bag of self-doubt that will get opened and released at least a few times at auditions throughout the year. What a year it will be! (laughs) I've said it before and I will say it again. So those... There are the challenges in a nutshell. But look, here's the thing. Is California a magical wonderland where you'll drink kale, get a tan, stop stressing out about things, and get back into surfing? Well, yes and no. You're going to audition, and you're going to feel bad about it. You're going to get stuck in traffic and feel frustrated about it. You can add kale to a smoothie, and you can rent a surfboard and get tanned while using it. You can do all of these things. And the stress? Well, you know this about yourself. You're always going to stress over things anyway, so what's the use in wishing that away? So just to be clear, it's going to be a hell of a year. What a year it will be! You're going to date some men who text you with things like sup as a way to initiate seeing you later that night. Riveting. And, uh, and just so you know, no one will hire you, no matter how hard you try. These are challenges, but the fight will march on. So don't get down, that's the territory. People don't call you back in LA. And eligible men more often than not end every sentence like a question? (laughs) You do have more than this to look forward to. For each of the friends on the West Coast you realized you couldn't count on, you're going to meet five you can count on. Late nights in their backyards talking about life or adventures through traffic to see 80s bands perform at the county fair. Or coffee dates on the fly, or hiking together to see the city that tests your patience and your will from up above, looking so small you could crush it with your fist. These will be the things that matter to you. These will be the people who will keep you loving Los Angeles and realizing it's actually all it's cracked up to be. So be bright-eyed. Be optimistic. Oh, and uh, by the way, you may notice that while you're flying you will catch a news story that a shooting is happening at LAX right at the gate where you're supposed to fly into. Let's not take that as an omen. (laughs) You're going to get diverted to San Diego just like you may get distracted here and there in your pursuit of fulfillment in this city of angels you've decided to live in. But if you don't have hurdles and you don't struggle and you don't fight, then you may not get to where you would like to be. Rotten apples help you to appreciate the cream of the crop. What a year it will be! (laughs) Enjoy it, because when it's over, you'll be glad it happened. Take it from me, I know. I come from the future. Yours, you. Thank you. (laughs)
Liz Brown reads a letter to the hooligans who congregate in front of her house in the dead of night. Dear drunken idiot douchebag standing in front of my bedroom window at 2.13 a.m. on a Wednesday. (laughs) You utter fucks. It's 2.13 in the morning. I know that in your world, the party is just getting started for the night, but in the arts and reality that the rest of us refer to as real life, this is when people sleep. They sleep now so that they can wake up in the morning and go to work without falling asleep in traffic. It's a thing. It's not the fact that you're drunk that fills me with rage. It's not even the fact that you're louder than a gaggle of cannibalistic geese pecking each other to death in a fit of gleeful madness. And it's not the imbecilic conversations you have about the shitty demo reel that's really coming together. (laughs) Or your discussion about your favorite family guy quotes. These are not the things that infuriate me, which is surprising because I fucking hate Family Guy. (laughs) What truly enrages me deep down in my guts is that every single time I've gone outside to politely ask you to move your unofficial meeting of Shitbags Anonymous to another location, every motherfucking one of you always says the exact same thing. It's a public street! I can do what I want! If you don't like it, you should move somewhere else! You don't own the street! I'm in public, so I can do whatever I want! You know you all say the exact same thing, right? I know that each and every one of you thinks you're gonna blow my mind with this very original series of statements, but the truth is that none of you are unique snowflakes. You all say the exact same thing. Now I'd like each one of you as individuals to take a little time and turn that statement over in your mind for a few seconds. I'm in public so I can do whatever I want. This is incorrect information. In no way, under no circumstances, is in public the place where you can do whatever you want. In public is the exact opposite of that place. In public is the place where you're required to show the most basic amount of self-control and conduct yourself within the boundaries of public decency. Let me use an example to illustrate. If I went over to my friend's house and he was taking a shit in a pastry bag and swinging it around over his head screaming, hot shit muffin, straight out the oven. <laughs> and I had a problem with that, I'd have to say to myself, you know what? This is Kyle's private residence. He can do as he pleases. However, if you were standing in front of my house doing the exact same thing, in theory, I could call the police and tell them, yes, hi, there's a gentleman in front of my house screaming and waving around a pastry bag full of feces. Could someone come over here and ask him to stop doing that? And they would. You know why they would do that? Because it's in public! Where are you guys getting your information? There's a virtually infinite number of things you are in no way permitted to do in public. Here's a few of them for your current and future reference. Sex, oral, anal, and or vaginal. Pooping. Being nude. Setting things on fire outside of designated barbecue areas. Drinking alcohol, smoking crack, shooting up heroin, and or snorting blow. Gambling, including but not limited to games of chance, dice, number running, and or bookmaking. The list goes on and on. Public is not the place where you can do whatever you want. You do that in your own private douchebaggy domicile, which I assume is stuffed with items as dumb as you are. (laughs) 
All right, that was just mean. I'm sorry I said that last part. I'm sure whatever furniture you have in your home is fine. It's just, why couldn't you just move the fuck along and be drunken douchebags anywhere else but in front of my house? I guess it's because I embarrassed you. I publicly called you out on the fact that you're acting like assholes. You feel shamed, and then you get defensive, and then you lash out with the dumbest argument ever. It's because you're not thinking. If I may be so bold as to suggest something, what if you're just like, oops, I'm sorry we're being so loud, good night, and then you went away? That's something that you could do. Yes, it requires the tiniest amount of humility to admit you were briefly acting like an idiot, but it's over so fast, you guys. I want to share a story with you. The following is not a joke. I just had to take a break from writing this letter to go outside and shoo away two hobos hanging out in the abandoned entertainment center my landlord left on the sidewalk in front of my house. I probably wouldn't have even noticed that they were there. The hobo woman giving her hobo boyfriend a blowjob just a stone's throw away from my bedroom window had the gentleman not chosen to blast the 2013 classic Gangnam Style on his mini radio while receiving his oral pleasure. But he did choose to do so. The temptation of the ultimate sexual high complemented by the throbbing bass sound of Gangnam Style was just too much for him to resist. He flew too close to the sun. <laughs> now think about this. Those hobos chose to fuck right outside my window for a reason. There was an abandoned six-foot-tall entertainment center there, and they thought to themselves, that's where we should go to blow each other. It will give us a modicum of privacy, because we know that you can't just do whatever the fuck you want in public! <laughs> and you know what happened after I went outside and told them they needed to leave? They stood up and said, sorry, we'll go. Do you realize what I'm saying to you? Two cracked out hobos who blow each other to Gangnam style just outclassed you assholes twice in the span of three minutes. Take fucking note. I'm right, you're wrong, say you're sorry and move the fuck along, douchebags. Please think about what I've said. I've gotta go write another letter now. It will read, Dear Landlord, can you please call and have your abandoned entertainment center in front of our place picked up? There are hobos giving blowjobs in it. To Gangnam style. Sincerely, Liz Brown. Thessaly Lerner not only plays the ukulele on this episode, along with Adam Brown on banjo, she reads letters from her family's farm at the turn of the century. November 30th, 1927, Perry, Oklahoma. Dear children, one more time I am stopping long enough to write, and I've got back to Perry for the winter. It will soon be Thanksgiving again. The time seems so short. I have been to see all the relatives and friends, what is in reach. I first went up to the farm in June, was up there till after harvest. We had a very good harvest this year. Charlie O'Dell is on the place now. We think he will do fine. I went over there for a visit. Hope Odell's girls, Melly and Florence, live over there. I visited them. They took me to Kingman's to Viola's. Florence sold her home on Belmont and bought on Kingman. I was with her six weeks, you know. She died last Christmas, and she was so lonely. I visited the sisters up there and had a good time all around, and one of the sisters took I and Viola to Hutchinson. Viola's youngest girl lives there, and she will stay with her this winter. Then they brought me back to Wichita, and I stayed with Merle a week. Merle is one of her sons. 
Then I took the boys and came back to Tom's and was there a few days, and Bert and Cora came after me Sunday. Bert is also her son. So I will be there the rest of the winter if nothing happens. It is a misty day, and it looks like we may have some winter. We are going after pecans, but it's too bad. We may not get any. It's too late for them. I hope you are well and doing fine. The kids are well that I have heard from. I have neglected to write so much this summer. I'll have to go back in the spring for visits if only my health stays good. I never felt better than I do. I have never been sick but one half day, and that was decoration day. It didn't last long. I sure got wonderful health. I'm so thankful to my heavenly father. By the way, my great-grandfather was an atheist, um, which is very unusual in those days. For I hope to keep it. Merle is selling coffee for the oldest firm in Wichita. He thinks he has a good job and one that will last a long time. I hope it does. He would love to hear from you folks if you care to write. I had a letter from Papa's brother last night. He thinks he might come and see us after the Christmas rush. You know, he carries the mail in Jacksonville, Illinois. Bert is working here in the garage. They have had a long siege waiting for the new Fords to come in. And they think they will soon come. It has knocked some men out of business waiting so long and having so many. The man that Bert works for had to put his men to work putting in the wheat, the first in over 400 acres of wheat. It may bring out of it comes good. Well, I think I have told you all for this time, write when you can. Much love, mother. Here's another letter. Then This is all in like one letter packet, by the way. Dear Rose, this is my great-grandmother she's writing to. I haven't had a letter from you for a long time. I hope you are well and the rest. I guess little Jack is getting to be a big boy now. I guess it takes up all of your time keeping house and tending him. Don't work too hard. The last letter I got from Harley, that's my great-grandfather, I believe you had a house full of company. I know you all had a good time with old friends. I sure had a good time visiting the old friends. There is lots of folks dead that was our neighbors one time. <laughs> but the young ones are coming on. They all think I look so young. They say Bert and Cora looks as old as I do. They are both gray, but I am very little gray. And I am heavier than I was. I have no wrinkles, but I'm in good health. And I don't work very hard. What are you going to do Thanksgiving? <laughs> I don't know what we will do. I have some kind of doings, I guess. We look for Brother Abe. I don't know if he will come or not. I was to come by and see him, but didn't have time. Bert had to get back to his work the day he came after me. Well, Rose, write to me when you can. Much love to all, Mother H. And then we found an extra page in this letter thing. Just reading over your letter. I see you wanted to know who got the wheat on this place this year. Seaman got Merle's share. That's her son. I got mine, and the oats were Charlie's. I got my share of them. I realized $694.53, so I done fine. Had enough to pay my taxes and interest, and I have some to go home on. I hope it will do well this year, as I think the house will have to be shingled. It needs it bad now. Merle, this is her son, had it papered inside and painted before I came. They said it was a fright before it was done. Merle said the crops was always so poor he never had hardly enough to pay taxes and interest. They sure have it in for the farm. She said they nearly starved, but I don't think there was any use of that, for there was no one else there that was that bad off. But I hope he will make it now. Seaman is letting him alone. He says, of course, I don't know how they fix things up. She couldn't let him take bankruptcy, so they will never be able to have anything and maybe would cut more than live. I, don't, I think she's talking about wheat. Anyway, I'm sorry for Merle does hard work and don't manage well. Millie's address is 107 Driscoll, Indianapolis, Indiana. And that's the, the story from a 1927, my great-great-grandmother. Onward, Pioneer Letters. Dan O'Connor of Impro Theater fame 
improvises an impeccable letter in the style of Jane Austen, as suggested by the audience. My dearest Eleanor, I write you on this cold and frosty morning, which is cold and frosty because the window has been broken in. A burglar, a new term which I am unfamiliar with, crawled through <laughs> last night and stole the pianoforte. I'm not quite sure how they managed to uh, get it out, for it was on the second floor. Mother was awakened, but thought it was just father's breathing. I see through the tracks in the snow that the pianoforte was taken towards the village, and I will take action later this morning in order to find out where the culprit has taken the last thing you touched in our house. When you visited last summer, you played on it, and you played on my heart. I know that that might be presumptuous of me to say that you played on my heart, for you only touched the keys of the instrument. And yet my heart across the room, an instrument of love pounding and looking towards you, hoping to be played by your fingers someday. I know that if your father should read this letter, that perhaps our correspondence would come to a swift and brief end. Know then that I risk all in writing you to tell you of this burglary for I feel you've stolen my heart. And like the pianoforte, I long to get it back. You have, you have burgled my heart, Eleanor. You are a thief of love. And know that when the snow melts and the trail of the burglar is gone, there will still be a trail to your home in Somerset, one that I will set off upon, upon the next new moon, which is tomorrow. Having written that, I realize that I may get there before this letter does. It would be inconvenient of me to actually bring the letter and hand it to you and then go outside and wait for you to read it in order for you to know how deeply I care about you. But such is the depth of my affection that I risk all. Your father's hatred, your possible approbation, approbation. I'm sorry I'm writing in ink and can't cross that out. But I hope that you will receive this letter with the intent that it is sent, with the intent of wooing you and letting you know that I wish to share my life with you. And I wish to be the left hand to your right hand on the pianoforte. I cannot play as of yet, but I will study. I will practice in the ways of being whatever hand you need me to be. I look forward to you playing on my instrument. Once again, I cannot cross that out, for the ink would be soaked up in the parchment and it would look like I wept over this letter, which I do weep inside, knowing that I'm separated from you at this moment. Well, I must stop writing at this juncture, for I need to find the burglar of the pianoforte. And after that, I long to find the burglar of my heart. Your dearest Charles, postscript, should you be standing there reading this while I'm looking at you, I hope you'll take pity on me. Abby Shackner shares a letter from her family's checkered past in which her father enlisted the services of a hired gun to remove her mother from the family picture. I got this letter from my mom. It was a package from my mom. Uh, I was doing a show, and two weeks before I did the show, she sent me this package. It said, Dear Abby, well, here it is. 
I think these papers and tapes might help you in putting all this in some perspective. I hope it helps to clarify a lot of unanswered questions as well. I love you, my Abby, XXX mom, May 2014. She sent me this package that basically contained like transcripts and newspaper articles from my parents' divorce. They had a newspaper-worthy divorce. And in the package, and I had come across these transcripts in fifth grade, and apparently I started crying, and a friend of mine's mother told my mother that years later. But this is a letter that I found in the package. It said, it was November 2nd, 1994, Dear Maudette and Chester, it's from my mom's lawyer in the case, and my mom ended up marrying Chester. Dear Maudette and Chester, 1994. In destroying all files, I came across these photographs and tapes that I obtained years ago to give you. Sorry for the delay, Dick. And I basically open this package and I see pictures of undercover cops who were the hitman and them holding the $11,000 that I had once seen on the screen when I was six years old on the television. Anyway, I talked to my mom. She said, um, now do you see? And I'm like, my opinion's not changing. But I kept on looking in this envelope. It was very interesting. And I came across this letter in 1979, August 21st. And this whole incident with my parent, you know, the divorce and this attempted murder happened between 76 and 78. This is to my mother, Dear Maudette, and it's, it's entitled Maudette versus the World. Dear Maudette, enclosed herewith is the dog-eared check received this morning from Lucky. That must, that's my father. Note the date. The signature appears to be written in Sanskrit by a drunken Eskimo, but Lucky, Harland, and Bobby assured me the check was good in the presence of Judge Durrell. That's the guy who let my dad get off because apparently if you pay a hitman after the fact, it didn't count at that time in Ohio. Okay, but I got a relationship with my dad, so that's good, and I love both parents, so, you know, that's... Anyway, so the myopic midget of middling mentality has agreed to have with him tomorrow evening the September check in the amount of $400. In addition, he has agreed to pay each month's child support or forfeit his companionship privileges with the children for that month. I shall not believe it even when I see it. Lucky is really quite a humorous fellow. Your life with him must have been a barrel of laughs. <laughs> In conclusion, I reiterate my original suggestion that a boarding school in the Siberian Alps for the children would be a solution that should have much appeal to you, Lucky and Chester. Regards, Dick. And then at the bottom he said, P.S., I would rather sit with the women. So then I deduced today, when I looked over it, I thought, oh, this is for my brother's bar mitzvah. There's something going on about my brother's bar mitzvah. Here's one about my bat mitzvah in 1984. And this is from my dad's lawyer, uh, who he calls her Maud, Mrs. Maudette, and my mom had been married to Chester, like the wealthiest man in town that really irritated my father because my father was cheap, although he did pay a lot of money for a hitman in 78. <laughs> anyway, um, he, he, this is my dad's lawyer. Dear Maudette, this is to acknowledge receipt of the invitation to the bat mitzvah of Abigail followed by a luncheon. If my 55-year-old memory serves me correctly, it is my recollection that with respect to Willie's bar mitzvah, Dr. Shackner initially spoke of taking care of the luncheon, and thereafter some manner of dispute arose, and he took a moral stand which permitted him to agree to pay only for those luncheons consumed by persons on his list of invitees. I heard indirectly that an impasse was reached and Dr. Shackner, as a matter of principle, graciously made no payment for any of the lunches. Be assured that the taste of the food was not affected because Chester or you, rather than Sheldon, paid for the lunch. Accordingly, I shall not agree to be a guest at the luncheon until such time as Dr. Shackner agrees in writing to make a payment in advance for those... But anyway... Um, 
I just I just found it incredibly interesting. There's it's constant deducing. Just it never ends. And uh, and, and thank you. And stay out of trouble. <laughs> My name is Jane Entwistle, and I'm a producer on To Whom It May Concern. And I read a letter to the very first person I met in Hollywood. Dear Chucky, I just read that the bar where we met has closed its doors forever. People always claim that this place or that is an institution, and it rarely ever is. But the powerhouse? That was an institution. A dive even Tom Waits deemed worthy. I'll miss that festering hole in the wall. We all will, those of us lucky enough to visit the bar and survive. You were the first person I met in Hollywood besides waiters and my landlord. Did you know that? I met you my very first weekend in Los Angeles. I only knew two people in LA and they both worked in television, so I essentially was on my own 99% of the time. (laughs) It was a Friday night and I had just attended an improv show at um, IO West. And Hollywood Boulevard was alive and electric, and I thrilled at all of the possibilities my new neighborhood had to offer. It was only 8 o'clock, and I wasn't ready to go home yet. Plus, I was hungry, so I looked around Hollywood and Highland for somewhere inexpensive to eat. (laughs) Yeah, right. Finding nothing reasonable, I found myself in front of Hooters. I peered in the window and was shocked to see children inside. I shyly walked inside and asked the hostess if I was allowed to eat there. (laughs) An awkward silence followed, and then she grabbed a menu and brought me upstairs to sit at the deserted bar away from other customers. I text a picture of the Hooters logo to a few friends back home in San Francisco, and their immediate panicked response was, Hooters, come home now. I remembered a waiter telling me my local bar was called the Powerhouse. So after Hooters, I ventured across the road and sidled up to the bar. Dark, seedy, in disrepair, I loved it. A couple carrying shopping bags came in and sat down next to me at the bar. The man chatted away to me about his fabulous purchases, while his companion, a woman, stared straight ahead, never once making eye contact with me. The man told the bartender to pour me a beer on his tab. The bartender raised an eyebrow and asked, Are you sure? I looked at him blankly, and he looked warily at the man and back to me as if communicating something of tantamount importance. Lost as to the exact message being communicated, I accepted the beer and watched the two bartenders whisper to each other while looking dubiously at me and shaking their heads. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the woman growled something to the man, and they abruptly gathered their bags to leave. In a deep and commanding voice, the complete opposite to the voice he had been using, the man whispered savagely in my ear, Meet me here tomorrow at four. (laughs) And then they were gone. I felt like I had dodged a very uncomfortable bullet, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. I looked around the bar as if to say, did you guys see that? (laughs) Anyone? And that's when I made eye contact with you, Chucky. You were sitting in a rounded booth, a little person version of Mr. T, complete with mohawk and gold chains. 
You had your arms up resting on the shoulders of two hot babes on either side of you. We locked eyes and you nodded and said, how you doing? I suddenly realized that Hollywood had the capacity in that naive moment to swallow me whole. I drained my pint of PBR and headed for the restroom before going home. When I came out, I almost tripped over you, leaning against the wall. Smoke outside, you commanded. I don't smoke, I replied. <laughs> so, you countered. As we walked toward the smoking alley, people high-fived you and slapped you on the back, calling you Chucky. Later, I would learn your real name and felt outraged that people taunted you with the stupid nickname Chucky like that insipid demonic doll. After your smoke, we went up to the roof of the Hollywood and Highland Mall. You wanted me to look through the telescopes they have up there, but as it was nighttime, I couldn't really see anything, and then you wanted a turn, but you couldn't reach. We decided on another drink and went to the outside pool bar at the Roosevelt Hotel. If the Roosevelt Hotel is the equivalent to shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue, then the powerhouse where we had just been was akin to shopping for clothes at the AMPM. <laughs> Fire pits, chaise lounges, a DJ probably French, and a pool so famous it's appeared in books. We shared a beer, because it's all we could afford, it's the Roosevelt, and a lounger, because we could both fit. <laughs> My first night in Hollywood, and I dodged a potentially awkward three-way. I'm lying on a swanky sunbed under the stars at a posh hotel and sharing a Budweiser with a miniature Mr. T. You told me about being an actor and what it was like growing up with dwarfism. And then you turned to me and asked, and what's it like for you being a little person? In the prolonged silence that followed, in which I grappled with how to tell him I wasn't a little person, we made out. There on that chaise lounge. I remember thinking that I didn't want to not kiss you simply because you were a little person, because after all, you were a man first, and you could be the great love of my life. <laughs> we left the bar hand in hand and walked down Hollywood Boulevard at one o'clock in the morning. The street was still heaving and dudes were yelling as they drove by, you go, little man. You hooted back and waved at everybody while I wanted to tear their bumpers off and shove them down their throats. I've thought a lot about that night, how it seemed to set the tone for my time here in this vibrant, quixotic city. Writing you this letter, it has only just occurred to me that we share more in common than I thought, besides both being actors and fans of PBR. My growth was stunted at four foot two. With a life expectancy I have already surpassed miraculously by 20 years. Unlike you, my body responded to a medicine that forced it to grow to five feet. I wasn't offended that you thought me a little person. That would imply there's something wrong with being little. I felt touched, as if you had seen something in me that no one else had seen. Lord knows I don't want to trivialize you or me or that night. 
It was a first night in a new town befitting of Hollywood. Thank you, Chucky. By the way, a few weeks after that night, as I strolled down the Walk of Fame, passing the costumed characters in front of the Chinese theater, I saw a Chucky doll character up ahead. As I passed, I heard a muffled, yo, Jane. I finally figured out why everyone calls you Chucky. <laughs> it would seem there was more heart in that old Hollywood institution, the powerhouse, than I had thought. All my love, Jane. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean so you never miss a single letter. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live on the other side of the planet, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. Used and you'll turn to me and I will see the boy.